Well, hi, everybody, and welcome once again to Chicago Unbelievable. I am Adam Seltzer. Uh, with me, of course, is Hector Reyes. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Hector's roommate, Aaron. Hello. And today we are talking with author Dan Krause about his new book, Rotters. We are currently sitting in the Chicago, the uh, cafe of the Chicago History Museum, because it's one of those ridiculously cold spring days in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But the Chicago History Museum is at the south end of Lincoln Park, which puts it smack dab in the middle of the old city cemetery. A lot of people don't realize that uh, what is now Lincoln Park used to be the City Cemetery, this is where pretty much everybody was buried. Uh, Just south of here was the Catholic Cemetery, which stretched down to about Astor Street, which means that the Astor Hotel, where John Lennon apologized for saying the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, was built on a Catholic graveyard. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are still uh, thought to be quite a number of bodies left over here. Uh, Every time they dig in this vicinity, they find somebody. The records at City Cemetery were kind of shoddy. In fact, one of the sextons, they just gave him his job because his memory was good. They thought he would remember where bodies were buried, but all the time they'd start digging a new grave and find somebody was already there, or they'd uh, dig somebody up to move them to another cemetery and somebody would quick uh, throw another casket in there. Well, the reason we're really here is to talk about grave robbing, which is the subject of Dan's new novel, uh, Rotters, coming out uh, April 5th from Delacour Press. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little yeah, bit tell, about it. Tell us about it, Dan. Uh, it's about a uh, 16-year-old who uh, loses his mother. He lives in Chicago and is sent to rural Iowa to live with a father he has never uh, met or even known about. And he is revealed to be a modern-day grave robber. And this kid is slowly... Uh, brought into this secret underground network of grave robbers that stretches all across the country. And uh, so it's sort of one part uh, Carrie, one part uh, Indiana Jones, and a whole heck of a lot of creepy. Uh, and, and gross in parts of it because I did do a lot of research into not just grave robbing but decomposition and all that fun stuff. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask when you were doing all of this research, you know, there's details in it about. Um, how long it should take to dig up a coffin, how to get it open, what you might find, and not just in terms of valuables that were the targets of the grave robbing, but what kind of shape the body was going to be in, the stuff called coffin liquor. Um, when you were doing all of this, though, did you ever get the urge to try it? Uh, yes, but I want to <laughs> qualify that answer. Um, I don't really savor the idea of you know, opening any kind of vessel and encountering... Uh, Coffin liquor, for one thing. Coffin liquor is an actual term that uh, is referencing the sort of viscous ooze that uh, flesh turns into uh, as it decomposes inside a casket. So I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to touch that. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to see it. I don't really even want to think about it. Uh, but I, on the other hand, though, I can't really pass a cemetery anymore without looking at the fences and thinking about, okay, is this an easy score? Is this a difficult score? What part of this fence would I uh, scale? What tools would I need to scale it? How's the tree cover? Would it be, uh, you know, easy cemetery to, uh, you know, dig a body from or not? So you pass cemeteries all the time in life. You don't really even notice them necessarily. Right. But I do now all the time, and I. I, I see it from an entirely different perspective. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I had this weird, weird fear of cemeteries. I wouldn't go past them or anything. Even though, like up through when I was a teenager, I probably, you know, helped get the ball rolling on global warming by going way out of my way to keep from driving past cemeteries. And uh, <coughs> I would have nightmares about them. And I, I've pretty much gotten over that now after, you know, having a career in the ghost hunting industry for five or six years. But uh, your book brought it all back. Yeah. So, good, good. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. But I'm yeah, great. even I kind of got the ears 
like, man, I gotta try this. Yeah, it, <laughs> one of the uh, it does the book does sort of make one of its successes, I think, is that it makes this kind of repugnant act seem sort of dashing at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which brings me to my question. Um, I understand the whole process of, uh, of creativity. Like, you get an idea, and then it exposes something else. And I'm sure you were doing the research about the uh, grave robbings initially. But what prompted you to write this book? What was the what 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 what, what was the explosion that happened for you the, in writing the book? The explosion. I can kind of uh, uh, identify it very precisely. Actually, I was living in North Carolina, uh-huh. and I was in a uh, news truck. I worked for TV News. I was a videographer. Mm-hmm. And there was a hurricane. I lived right on the coast. And there was a hurricane bearing down. And I was literally trying to outrun a hurricane in my van. And I passed a cemetery. And it was just, you know, pouring rain. And I suddenly had this image of this cemetery which was flooded mm-hmm. and like storming and seething with caskets and loose bodies. Uh, and I saw, I saw this vision of these two men battling through the muck of this cemetery, trying to find some valuable object. I didn't really know what to do with that idea, and I didn't do anything with it for a good 10 years. Uh, And then suddenly I had the idea of a grave robber having a son, and that provided me the inroad. Everything came into place relatively quickly as soon as I came up with the point of view. I I never knew what the story should be from the the grave robber's point of view, or someone else's point of view, or an outsider's point of view. But once I had the student that needed to learn from the master, uh, the story sort of fell into place. But it all came from that one moment of seeing a, a flooding cemetery, essentially. So, so often that kind of thing happens. You have the idea for years, you just need that one ingredient to make the whole thing work. Got some food showing up here. Yeah. <laughs> so while we're talking about, you know, coffin liquor and stuff, let's up bottoms up. I mean, we thought about eating at a diner that would have syrup because uh, we have actually... We're, 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 <laughs> Nicely said. Well, well we're doing... Uh, all next week on uh, Chicago Unbelievable, in honor of Rodgers, we're going to be doing Grave Robbing Week, all stories of grave robbing from Chicago history. We've dug up quite a lot of stories, pun absolutely intended, uh, one of which was that uh, one day a barrel showed up at the uh, American Express office at Washington in Dearborn. Back, American Express, the shipping company, not the, uh, not the credit cards. Um, and this was a barrel labeled syrup, but it wasn't syrup inside. And that's something I run into all the time in research, is guys deciding it's a good idea to mail a dead body. And sometimes it was, uh, well, during the 1870s in Chicago, there was a rule that all of the people buried in the Potter's Field, the uh, poor cemetery, which is where the Lincoln Park baseball fields are now, um, all the medical schools got first crack at them before they could get buried. So that kind of put down the market for dead bodies in Chicago, but there was still a booming market in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Iowa City, Iowa. So there was still quite a lot of grave robbing going on here. And uh, in addition, we also find there's at least two stories that I know of offhand in Chicago where uh, somebody murdered somebody and decided, well, let's stuff them in a barrel or a trunk and mail it to Pittsburgh or New York. Yeah, in my research, I, I came across that too. People sending bodies in barrels usually in brine or something that would preserve them or pickle them. Mm-hmm. And I can't even recall why these bodies are always being shipped, but they were always being shipped in barrels Yeah, or liquid. Well, what do you ship your bodies in? <laughs> no, I, I, usually, I usually go with some sort of like, you know, luggage type of uh, fare. Sand of, to dry it out. Right, right, yeah. I don't ever use barrels. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. archaic. Mm-hmm. And they leak. 
Now, there are a few relics left of City Cemetery out there. Besides the bodies, it's well known that a lot of the bodies got left behind, either be, either from laziness or whatever. Uh, the, there are two major visible things. One is that there's a boulder marking the approximate burial place of this guy, David Kennison, who at the time of his death said that he was 115 years old and the last surviving participant of the Boston Tea Party. And here at the Historical Society, they've actually still got some leaves of some tea leaves that he said were from Boston. Though if you ask them about it here, they kind of laugh because it's generally known the guy was completely full of crap at this point. Now, he was an early Chicago hero. He gave us all something to be proud of in the 1850s in Chicago, which we were still kind of short on. We know we didn't have Abraham Lincoln to talk about yet. So, so you know, the story has value, but it's not necessarily true. Uh, the other one, the big and most obvious one that you can see driving down Clark Street or driving down, um, driving up LaSalle is... Uh, the Couch Vault, the uh, 150 some odd years old uh, crypt of the Couch family that is actually the last surviving, the oldest surviving building in the Chicago Fire Zone. Um, there's a lot of stories going around about why that one is still here. Some people say the Couch family sued. Some people said that it was so heavy that it would cost too much to move. Uh, some people said maybe they should leave one here as a rela as a reminder that this used to be a cemetery. I think it was probably kind of all of the above. Like the Couch family started saying, hey, we don't want to move that. We'll sue you if we've got to. And then somebody on the board said, ah, you know, that thing's going to cost a fortune to move anyway. Another guy said, and eh, shouldn't we just have like some kind of relic here? Okay, we'll just leave that one. You know, the relic idea makes more sense sense to me than the others because it's not that big of a crypt really. Right, well it was going to cost a lot to move. There are certainly bigger ones here though. Yeah, so they moved those, so why not this one? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, but also, you know, they weren't necessarily in the habit of leaving reminders that a graveyard was there. I think uh, there used to be a woman in Chicago, she died about a year ago, Helen Sclare, the cemetery lady. Uh, she, had, yeah, she, had, she had identified uh, 63 lost cemeteries in Chicago. Uh, the first one, the first official one, they decided, when they decided we need, okay, this is a big enough town that we need to have a cemetery, we'll put it someplace way out of the way where it's not going to get in the way, the city will never grow that far. So they put it at about Clark and Chicago, <laughs> which at the time was, you know, it's about a mile, about half a mile north of the river. That was way out of the way in the 1830s. But within about five years, they knew that they needed a bigger one. That's why they put in City Cemetery where Lincoln Park is now. And for the same reason, it was so far out of the way at the time that everybody thought it would stay away until they realized there were going to be too many dead bodies in the drinking water. Times. Right. Yep. Right. And drinking water is even something that I bring up in the book because of all the embalming liquid and the grave disinfectant that is used in the cemeteries that seeps into the drinking water. That's mm -hmm. something. Uh, all the all the resurrectionists, all the grave robbers in my book, are essentially ecologists uh, at heart. Mm -hmm. They want the ideal for them is, you know composting, you know, they don't, caskets are actually kind of a repugnant idea, uh, because they just, they're spoiled meat, uh, and it gets into the groundwater, it's disgusting, uh, but as long as it's there, you will take from it what you need, just yeah. as people have always grave robbed since, you know, Egyptian tombs and on back. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the uh, dad in your book describes it as the oldest profession. Which yeah. Here I thought it was prostitution. No, turns out. <laughs> turns out. I mean, sort of think about it, the very first, you know, person who died probably had a rock they were using. Yeah. Someone else comes by and takes the rock or takes the bones of the person who died. I mean, it's it's a, it's the most intrinsic thing. Someone dies, they have something. I use it. Yeah. Well, another thing we were talking about in your book is incorruptibles. Uh, this is a kind of thing that was. Um, 
where they would bury the body, and then when they dig it back up, they find that it hasn't actually rotted at all. Uh, we did have one of those in Chicago. Uh, Aaron, you, were, you you said you'd been out, been out um, to see? Yeah, um, out at Mount Carmel Cemetery um, is the statue of the Italian bride, which is a life-size statue of um, Julia... Oh, and I forget her last name now. Uh, <laughs> um, we'll find it. We'll find it. She's... Um, she died a young woman, and so her family had a statue of her in her wedding gown based on a photo of her in her wedding gown made for her tombstone, and a photo of, uh, based on the statue is, is there along with it. Um, about six years after she died, her mother was having nightmares and um, visions that her daughter wanted to be dug back up, that she wasn't really dead, and, and um, she put up such a fuss that they did dig up her daughter's body, only to discover that it looked exactly the same as when they buried it six years before. So she had no de decomposition whatsoever. Um, there's a photo of that as well on the same on the same um, headstone alongside the wedding photo. Yeah, which is weird because you see headstones with pictures of the deceased on it from time to time, but not usually a picture of them when they were dead. Right. So that's uh, and there's a long history of incorruptibles, you know, been reported all over the all over the globe throughout history. Uh, bodies that for mysterious reasons uh, have not. Decomposed, and in the book, there's a reverend who works with the grave robbers, trying to save their souls, essentially, who uses incorruptibles as sort of a uh, evidence that God is watching them and uh, does not approve, and that they are not to be messing around with what goes on in the dirt. I know it's generally saints that are mm -hmm. incorruptible, and they have. I think the oldest one is from around 1100 maybe I think that I've at least in my research that I've seen and still it's still on display at the uh, at what's the St. Peter's Cathedral I think it is in, uh, yeah. in uh, Rome so, yeah there's yeah. there's several that are on display mm -hmm. um, but there's one uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to remember his name I don't but um, a young man who died oh almost a thousand years ago mm -hmm. and he's still just in pristine except for his wound that killed him mm -hmm. so. now, now of course uh, Harnett the uh, main resurrectionist in my book would say give me five minutes with the body and some a uh, few choice chemicals and I can uh, yeah. make that happen for you <laughs> right I actually I, I brought up the story of the Italian bride to a, an archaeologist friend of mine he just kind of shrugged and said yeah it's called grave wax yeah. but I mean, you can't really tell from the picture that they took of her in the 1920s and um, I, I don't have any you know books in front of me but I'm guessing in general these incorruptible uh, people aren't given over to scientists to examine no, no not at all. they're kept in church they're cloistered away mm -hmm. it's, it's all based on you trusting mm -hmm. sources isn't that what faith is all about anyway trusting one of the if there was a for sure way method of finding out whether or not she was actually like in a corruptible check this to check the coffin see if there's any scratch marks right. there's a scratch mark she was buried alive <laughs> Which is a whole other interesting topic we yeah, can talk about. Is, really? Is, <laughs> is uh, the, the, during the time when being buried alive was a legitimate fear for people. Yeah, it's, it's something like when, they, when they've removed cemeteries, I think and there's cases where they found about 1% of them do have evidence that the person tried to get out. Right, and back in the day, they didn't have sure-proof ways to tell if someone was dead. They would, they would make up stuff, like they would put, put pins underneath people's fingernails and whatnot, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. trying to get them to react to make sure they were dead, but people didn't get buried alive, and so they invented all these kind of cool gadgets that if you were rich enough or obsessed enough, you could be buried with uh, 
a, a string that went to this pole above the uh, your grave where you could ring a little bell if you got caught beneath uh, the dirt and other kind of gadgets too, buzzers and lights and all oh, sorts of things. Oh, the flag was my favorite. Yeah, uh, there was one, and it's I, I saw this in Ripley's Believe It or Not dot com, where it's 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 the same pulse as a flag. It's a uh, it's a pulley system, and it reveals this white flag waving in the air and it's like oh my god that person's still alive mm-hmm. what they don't realize is that you it's going to be several days before somebody sees the flag and by then right, you're right. dead anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> well you know a lot of these cemeteries were pretty well guarded at the time though because of the grave robbing though in uh, chicago there's a lot of stories that the uh, the sexton was an easy guy to bribe and sometimes you didn't even have to you just say hey i'm gonna rob a grave tonight can you have the guards be someplace else mm-hmm. and for a few bucks, he'd do it or even give him the night off, apparently. Bribery was always a smart a smart tactic. Yeah. No, it, was, it was a lucrative business for these guys. All right, well, just to kind of put these theories into practice, we uh, took a walk outside. Well, there's, a, there's an interesting thing on the grounds here. There's uh, the relic. If you dig around in the bushes, there's the... Uh, what's left of a department store or a grocery store that burned after the Great Chicago Fire. It's a big lump of metal now. And there's also a chain called the Putnam chain that was supposedly used during the Revolutionary War. It's one of many dubious Revolutionary War artifacts that they've got around here. Um, but yeah, we, t- we uh, took a walk out to the couch crypts to uh, you know see would this be an easy score for grave diggers. So uh, we'll, let's uh, move in on that. All right, we are now approaching the last remaining crypt from City Cemetery. Uh, City Cemetery, of course, is now Lincoln Park. There are quite a number of bodies thought to be still left. In fact, if you look over across the way here into this parking lot, uh, when they were digging out for that parking lot, they found 81 bodies, uh, one of which was in a Fisk iron sarcophagus that was uh, apparently doing its job. The guy inside was pretty well preserved. But the one above-ground crypt, the one visible reminder that this was a cemetery, is the tomb of Ira Couch. Now here's the trivia question for the day, who's buried in Ira Couch's tomb? Uh, nobody really knows. We know Ira's in there, and uh, apparently a few of his family members and possibly a family friend or something, but nobody's entirely sure. Now, Dan, here's the question is, would this be an easy score for a grave robber here? No, this is not an easy score because... Uh there's no clear way in. A lot of above-ground crypts actually have windows, so you can, uh... And you can see these marble can, things that might be covering windows. Right, these, it's possible that these are windows. If you could somehow get these marble coverings off, that there would be some sort of uh, pathway into the uh, crypt. And now, in general, the, the people in my book would agree that you want to stay away from robbing above-ground crypts in general because they make a mess. You could get into them, but it's going to be very clear that somebody had broken in, which is why it's better to deal with the underground than the above ground, if you want to make any kind of living doing this. Right. Addressing uh, a crypt like this, which looks very solid, obviously if it's lasted this long, untouched, it is solid. I would say you have two options. You could dig down. I don't know how, how much the, the marble and the stone goes goes into the ground, but you could, you could try to kind of go under it, or you could, over a period of nights, work on the roof, uh, roof. which, back in the day, there would not be uh, all these tall apartment buildings everywhere, Right. and you could work unseen, trying to chip your way in through some sort of sm- you know, small passage, just big enough for a single body to drop their way into the crypt. 
Just to let you know, uh, since you were talking about the actual construction, I can tell you a little bit about the construction in that this is like an iceberg. We are standing on the crypt right now, even though we're at the front door. Uh, the dimensions of it is uh, probably about three times larger uh, underground than it is above ground. Yeah, so. it, was, it was built to hold 13 people. Yeah. And probably, you know, nice and spacious for them. Because they were a very prominent family, the couches. So this probably has a stairway or something for <laughs> Stair, Yeah, stairway going straight down, and then it would be like an entire crypt area downstairs. So... Yeah, we're, we're standing on it. Yeah, no, nobody ever actually seems to know who's in here. Every couch family member has a different story. For some reason, the historical society has never really felt that compelled to go inside and find out. Do you think there's anybody left in there, or they haven't just rotted away? Well, I, you know, that's the one thing I, I found when researching rotters, is that you never can tell with caskets. Like, mm. I read stories of... Uh, you know, going into a crypt where there's six caskets and five of them are completely disintegrated and one is still sort of in basically good shape. So it's really, it's it's a kind of a mystery that has to do with probably the makeup of the caskets, how airtight it is, and then other mysterical, uh, mis mysterious, <laughs> oh, mysterical, if you prefer. Wait, one more yeah. time, mysterical, because everyone <laughs> Right. <laughs> now that it's in a podcast. Yes. Uh, so you never, you never really know what you're going to get. Right. Now, there's a chance that whatever was in here might have even burned up during the Great Chicago Fire. There were a lot of stories about people uh, people rushing away from the fire and ending up in what was left of City Cemetery and uh, ducking into the graves that had been dug up so they could move the bodies elsewhere. And down at, down at the corner of uh, North and Dearborn, the dead house was still standing there, what we would now call the morgue. Uh, they were supposed to have removed it by then, but apparently they didn't because there are all these stories about it burning up with bodies inside during the Great Chicago Fire. Um, you can kind of see it looks kind of like some fire damage on here, too. Yeah, it does. There's a couple of scorched places here. Right, and you can also see by the door handle where they've had to force it open at some point over the last 100 years or so. 150 years or so. Uh, yeah. Now, there is a ghost story about this place, if you like ghost stories, folks. Um, in the 1880s, a rumor went around that if you hung around here when this crypt was still standing, that if you hung around at midnight, you would see the door open and a woman in white would walk out of it. And it actually attracted crowds of people to come and see it. But I guess I, I can only assume they didn't actually see anything. But there were, around the early 20th century, a lot of stories about ghosts in Lincoln Park. Apparently the security guards who patrolled the area had a lot of stories. But strangely, the, the source of the ghost wasn't really said to be uh, people from City Cemetery. It was actually, at the time, over the lagoon, there was a high bridge that was uh, more or less officially called Suicide Bridge. There are actually postcards that I've seen that say Suicide Bridge. Uh, So-called because so many people, like dozens of people, committed suicide jumping off of the thing and into the lagoon. That's a pleasant, pleasant thought. That is, that is a pleasant thought. <laughs> Lots of pleasant stories about that. Another story about the dead house is at one point a guy tried to bribe the city sexton and say, hey, I'll give you 30 bucks if you'll let me steal three bodies out of there. And he'd make a nice profit. He'd save himself some digging. The sexton apparently agreed to it. But when he showed up, there were four guys with guns ready to shoot the guy. And, uh, but I guess nobody ever actually got in trouble for that one. 
uh, the city sexton I think actually got brought got a uh, forced to pay the guy a hundred bucks by some kind of weird legal maneuvering and we'll be telling all of this story all of these kind of stories there was another story about uh, the city sexton actually being caught digging up graves to sell himself they caught him uh, digging up nine bodies in the 1850s and yeah that's that's pretty good money these guys were getting you know 15 to 30 bucks a head and you know this is at a time when miners were working for a dollar a day so this was pretty good money uh, we'll be talking about all of this coming up all next week on uh, Chicago Unbelievable. It's grave robbing week. We'll be talking about grave robbing stories from Chicago history and uh, promoting uh, Rotters, the new book by Dan Krause. Yes. Great. Excellent. All right. All right. Thanks once again. This has been Chicago Unbelievable. <laughs>